What's up, guys? Welcome to the first ever 10th episode of the Kind of Funny Games cast. What's, As always, I'm Tim Geddes. What what's so upsetting is that people like it. I know. Like, I yell at you every week about this first ever crap, and everyone's yeah. like, no, let him do it. No, it's pretty good. Yeah, so, so there good. you go. I'm Tim Geddes. With me, the coolest dudes in video games, Colin Moriarty and... Greg Miller. Thanks. I don't know if that's true, but I appreciate it. Is it true. It is. It's a fact. I actually did scientific oh, okay. research. Oh, good. I'm not a scientist. But uh, I know uh, that. You printed it in a peer-reviewed journal. Yes. You understand the scientific method. Uh huh. There's hypotheses and conclusions. Objectively yep. provable. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. And all the way from far away, <laughs> we got Kezza McDonald here. What up? You might know her. She was a, a former. I had to do it for this show. Coworker. <laughs> we all worked together back at IGN. Yep. But it was like, we didn't work together. We weren't in the same building. I was separated by an ocean. Yes, from there was a, a big ocean. But and then a continent. What do you mean, you people? You. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying about Americans? That was brilliant. We, we all had our, our moments, though. Like, I'm sure you guys got to work with her a bit more than I did. But we, yeah. we had our moments. I don't know if you remember. I sure do. But at E3 2012, 13? Yeah, that would have been One right. of those. We did some conversations. We, did some, we talked Witcher. We chatted. Oh, it was Witcher, Witcher 2 or yeah. 3. I don't know. It was three something. at that point? Probably oh, three. All the E3s have started to blend. Of them, I don't know what, eight of them now. And they've all just started to blend yeah. to one just mass of tiredness. Yeah, one and ball of misery. Overhyped mm-hmm. video games. And dubstep. <laughs> so much dubstep. And yeah. things that will be delayed. I mm-hmm. always think about the poor people who are on the floor at E3 and who have to stay in a booth whilst the same Just Dance yep. song plays, plays continuously for four days. Oh, it must oh. be the worst. Speaking of that, a couple years ago, Call Me Maybe, when it first came out, <laughs> that was like the biggest deal. Yeah. Was that Call Me Maybe was just playing on repeat at the damn Just Dance. Thing, yeah. Carly Rae Jepsen's new song came out last night. How, this has good? nothing to do with video games, unless you, you know, unless maybe, it's in maybe, just dance. It'll, yeah, it'll be in just it dance, will be so in just dance. Have you guys heard it? No. <laughs> oh, I really, really, really like it. Good, good. Yeah. That's great. To That's know. good news. Yeah. So that was. A, I was the, the the booth. I always felt bad. It was the last uh, last year and for the entire year of conventions when the Ducktales booth was there. Oh no! Because like you'd walk by the Ducktales booth where they were making people sing in the thing, and it'd be like, "Oh, that's awesome!" But then to be a booth next to that for like three <laughs> days straight up, every day, and everybody freaking out, yeah, mm-hmm. like, "Oh my god!" Oh, I'm Jesus. That would, you would, that would you hate that so much. It's just like with Rockman One when they when I came up and I was like, "Oh man, thanks guys, I can't wait to demo." I'm like, "Oh, say it ain't so," and they're like, "You are not fucking playing." Say <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, you are not allowed to play like, that. Yeah, imagine. we will blow our brains out. Oh <laughs> god. Kaz, I like your shirt a lot. Thank you very much. It it's is a it's very classy. Pokemans. Official Kanto gym leader. Status Kanto, Kanto, I don't know how to say it. Kanto, I guess. Kanto, I used to call it. Yeah. Kanto, Kanto yeah. if you're being anyway, Japanese about it's pretty it. awesome. So, where are we, Greg? Oh, right now, everybody. If you're watching the video. If you're listening to MP3, it sounds great. Mm-hmm. If you just think we're at the house, it's great. We're not at the house. Mm-mm. We are broadcasting and recording this at Patreon.com. Of course, Patreon.com is what changed our lives and allowed us to get money from you to quit our jobs to start all this uh, crazy business stuff Woo! we do. It's kind of fun. Yeah! Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, you Thank you very, very much, much for your support. They were nice enough, Patreon, to, to give us... to the Death Star. To get, put us <laughs> in the Death Star here. <laughs> it is very strange. It is, right? It, Colin's been flipping switches all day. Mm-hmm. I can't figure out if any of it's real switches or are no, they all... It's all, okay, it's, it's, all, right. it's all held together with duct tape uh we're in their room here podcasting uh doing right now but what's happening which is weird is that we are recording this live while it's being broadcasted to twitch we've mm-hmm. been doing this stream monday tuesday and wednesday from 11 to 5 gdc devs coming in gdc friends coming in showing games talking games and part of that was yesterday doing the game over Greggy show with harley and then today doing the games cast so twitch people are watching right now we're not in the chat like we usually are because we're focusing on making the show as normally it happens mm-hmm and as it normally happens, this is a show where we get together and we talk about video games, whatever the hell we want to talk about video games, four topics broken out over the week over on YouTube.com slash Games. Then on Friday, you can get the new episode 
over at patreon.com slash kindoffunnygames, which is where we are. We are actually in that website right now. Yep. This, this, this is the website. Yeah, that's yeah. why that's it looks the This is what the internet the looks server. like yeah. in real so life. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, or then you can just get last week's episode over on iTunes or SoundCloud or like Pod Track. So you can or get the, the newest thing early or you can wait and get it all for free. Yeah, and it's great. And there's your rigmarole. But uh, on to some real shit right now. Some real shit. Right now, this is the, the Game Developers Conference, GDC. Right. It's a couple blocks away from here. Let me ask you guys a question. Who the hell cares about GDC? You're a piece of shit. Game developers? <laughs> I care about it. I presume. Yeah. So you, and I ask this because I am, you know, I'm in the game industry in many ways, but I'm a video guy. Like, yeah. completely video guy. I play games, care about stuff. I love game announcements. E3 is, like, my favorite week of the year. I know Colin hates it. Yeah, E3 is like a ball of complete It's great if you don't go. Yeah, when, when, <laughs> when, you're, when you cover it in a traditional way, which we will not be doing anymore, which is awesome. Oh, is it, this is weird, by the way, because the last time we were all together, we were all at IGN, and now none of us are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is... It is. Oh, yeah, we didn't even get to that. Where are you now? Oh, yeah, um, I run Kotaku in the UK now. Very fun. Yeah, haven't done IGN in the UK, and I do Kotaku. It's um, fun. But yeah, I, I, I just don't like... E3 is fun to watch. E3 is not fun to work, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, and, totally. And, uh... So yeah, we won't be doing that anymore. So I don't mm-hmm. have to. Be, I, I get to go to E three for the first time this year. This will be my tenth, I think, and uh, just be happy. But you know, t- I feel like to a lot of gamers, and I know for me that growing up, E three was like this thing you look forward to all year. And right. It's just mm-hmm. like there's two times of the year for gamers that are like the big things. There's E three, which announces the games. Then there's November, December, when you're like, holy shit, how am I going to buy all these games? And there's E3, and then there's like Gamescom, there's all these other ones where there's announcements happening and you're excited. And then there's GDC, which I always wanted to be excited about because I'm from San Francisco, and it would happen. I'm like, nothing's happening here. This is this well, is It's a boring. business conference, isn't it? It's a place for people to come and meet people who can help them with their business, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, the weird thing was, uh, when, I, when I was growing up reading magazines, you know, you'd just run out the door when the post-E3 magazine deadlines would happen. You'd just be like, ah! Just grabbing everything off the shelves, consuming it all. And now... Um, because of the internet, it's it's just a very different experience. You know, you don't have to wait for all the information to happen. It's just all happening all the time. Right. And so, in that magazine era, GDC wasn't really a th- it was a, it was a game developers conference. It was where people went to do business stuff. Mm-hmm. And now, because of the internet, it's become this thing that people cover. And it never really was that interesting to begin with. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, there's two different tracks to the question. I think, and like, it, it, why GDC matters and is exciting to a fan versus why GDC is exciting to us, right? Because we're we're lucky enough to be here. We get to go out and see our friends. We get to go to parties with our friends, catch up with developer friends. These people we haven't seen in forever, right? As a fan, I think the crossover is what's so exciting is. This is the place. This is E3 with all the bullshit stripped away. This is the core of why everybody does what they do. They come here and do this and talk to each other and learn from each other because they love games. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was the thing when I first started covering it. You go to these panels and you're, I would gloss over because they're talking about shaders and how many of the strings that they had to connect to. Do. And you're like, I don't even know what the hell you're saying. I'm only here to see if you're going to slip up and mention kills on four. You know what I mean? <laughs> or something like, well, you know what I mean? That's what I'm here that's, for. That's very honest. And that's what you're, I mean, that's what we were sent out to panels to do. And that's why panels have become less important. And now it's stuff like this where hey, a developer will come in and show you your game and catch you up on that. But it's, it's you know, when people talk about indies and how they work together and they do this and da-da-da, and like, you know, the games are, there's crossover between their games and stuff. I always think back to the fact that, you know, every GDC I've ever been to has been, hey, we are so-and-so, we had this super successful game, let me take you behind the curtain now and show you how we did that. You know what I mean? The, the games industry from 
when we talk about the games industry, you go, oh, I'm an Xbox fan. Well, I'm a PlayStation fan. Uh, there's all these battle lines drawn. And developers don't give a shit about any of that. Developers mm -hmm. want every developer's game to be awesome, to support the industry, go. Even if they ha are, ha have an exclusive agreement with one of the companies, you talk to them off the record, they're usually like, well, I wish we were on everything. Yeah, I course. want everyone to play People our want game. everyone to play their video game. Yeah, so you I'm get here and it's all unbridled excitement and passion for the future and the serious conversations we always say we don't get, right? Of like, what, what is the role of a female protagonist and how is this playing? And da, da, da. Those are the things that are happening right now over beers in conference rooms. People are... I, I was talking to somebody last night and I was saying... What's so exciting in that room next door, the which was uh, the indie open house, the indie mixer thing they do every year at IGN, was the fact that right now someone's new favorite game is in there. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You don't know it at home yet watching this video, but you, something over there people are playing for the first time and it's going to be it's gonna blow your fucking mind in a little bit. That's mm -hmm. awesome. So how important do you think that GDC is to the indie developers? Because I feel like over the last couple of years... I think hugely because there's, really so there's so much like calm. sharing of skills. And uh, you know, not just technical skills, but just the kind of the, the the art of making games, as well as the the technical stuff, and as well as the business. Like, I can't tell you how many indie developers I've met who cannot sell their game for shit. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, this is where they meet somebody who can help them with that. You know, hmm. and you know, ultimately, you need most of the time, unless you've got like a you know, Mike Bithell who did Thomas Was Alone. Yeah. Unless you've got someone like him, you need someone to sell your game for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you need a business partner to sort of do all the complicated, like the contractual stuff and getting it, getting it onto the, you know, the Wii U store or wherever you want it to be. You need mm -hmm. someone to do that for you. And that's where that very vital work is done. So yeah. I think it is it's hugely important. Yeah, I think that, you know, GDC is special because I think a lot of people think about creating video games as a skill. And it's really not. The skill is is the final product is the amalgamation of many different skills, whether it's coding or art or design, which I think is one of the major understated things about games. Like there are people that design the games, and I think we often they don't necessarily have practical coding skills, or they, they just put things in, in you know into really rudimentary programs, which then help the artists and the and the um, the programmers and stuff. So I think that like this is a way to, for everyone to synthesize their knowledge and their lack of knowledge of certain things. And I agree with Kezo, like. There's a lot of business done at GDC, and business is done at E3. I think there's a lot of business done at Gamescom, but um, they're more consumer focused. It, exactly, and that's a horrible word. I'm so sorry. Ew. They're more like outward facing. No, exactly, exactly. And you, you like there Don't are dress it up. So people, we know there now. are there are business. There's business deals being done there, but I think GDC is really all about that. Like GDC is not for. It's really not for gamers. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's. That's what's so interesting about it. You know, Keza and I are both really into storytelling and into writing long-form articles and really delving deep mm -hmm. into things. And I think that... So for people like us, I think GDC is really special because of the stories you hear. And even a lot of the off-the-record stuff you hear, like, there's a lot of fascinating stuff happening this week, every week, or every year in, um, in San Francisco. So uh, GDC is actually my favorite show. And uh, I think because it is so different, because it is so not for the consumer, it is so for everyone heightening their art and learning from each other and just seeing... Like, we had the guys from Drinkbox here uh, before, and before that we had Nathan from Cappy, and they know each other, and they, they work together in Toronto, but they were they were t mingling in the, the Patreon right. lobby, talking about how they never see each other in Toronto, and they see each other more at these kinds of shows, and they <laughs> catch up, and they're gonna go get dinner at some point, and all... You know, like, that, that stuff's good. That's good yeah. stuff. And it's more it's a more human element. The question you're asking, you know, how important is it to the indie developer? I think it's incredible incredibly important no matter what part of the scale like how long you've been doing it right if you're brand new it's about coming here and learning if you're in the middle it's about making connections right last night it was just amazing I, I always the best part of what we do outside of interacting with our community maybe I'm thinking more of when we're at IGN the best part we do obviously is getting to hang out and talk yeah. video games with our best friends every day but 
one of the coolest things I get to do is be a conduit between people I, I think already know each other and don't, right? Like, I was talking to a developer uh, who will remain nameless last night who's independent. She's trying to get her game out there. I'm having a conversation. And then Gio from PlayStation walked up. And I was like, oh, do you guys know each other? And she's like, no. And I'm like, oh, she would love to have her game on the PlayStation platform. He's like, oh, cool. And gives her a card. Like, that's yeah. such an easy connection. We take it for granted that we – and, like, people were tweeting at me angrily, right, of, like, you know, on Colin and Greg this week we've been – or even, I guess, last week with Ryan Payton, tweeting out at, like, Adam Boys and Geo and saying, like, hey, get this game on PlayStation. And then people are like, well, why don't you try to get it on Xbox? And it's like, well, I don't have that kind of relationship with Xbox. I don't know the right people mm-hmm. to go to at Xbox, right? Like, Phil Spencer, I don't know if he wants me bugging him with all these different <laughs> games. But this is, like, that situation of, like, I know PlayStation so well that I know they are the, they are looking for independent developers. But if you're an independent developer who's put all your money in to get to San Francisco, do you know how to connect those dots? And that's mm-hmm. awesome to be able to be a part of it and see that and hope mm-hmm. something happens. Absolutely. So taking a step back, what is GDC? Like for the people at home that don't know, because I remember when I was younger, I just had no idea what it was. Because I, I imagined it was just like E3 was. You see the pictures in the magazines of E3 and you're like, <laughs> oh yeah, there's like these crazy boots and all this stuff. But like, So what exactly does the conference consist of? It's a business summit. So you have people who sit in rooms who talk and have a PowerPoint presentation about what they've done with their animation or like a cool thing they discovered when they were doing user testing in their latest game or something like that that's usually quite quite like nitty gritty development stuff and then a lot of people sit and watch and so there are you know 10 20 of these panels going on at any one time and you kind of work through the day as a developer or you know someone attending you work through the day and you pick stuff that you think looks interesting or sounds interesting and you go along and have a little listen i thought um the post-morts as they call them are some of the most interesting ones which is when a developer their game probably released last year and they're like here is the whole process and what we learned from releasing divinity original sin or from releasing shenmue that was a great one a few Mm. years back and uh, the great thing about GDC now is that you can watch all of it. It's all on the vault right. online, and you can just watch these talks. So if you just happen to be really interested in, I don't know, a particular developer, or or whatever, you can just watch you know, an hour of a guy talking about what it was like to make it and release it. And I think that's great. We never used to be able to do that. No, no. That, that, I would have ate that up when I was a teenager. Sure, yeah. To, have, all about to it. have that insight, right? To be yeah. able to talk, hear these people talk about what they actually go through. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot. I think something like GDC breeds a lot more openness, even if it's really not meant for major consumption or mainstream consumption. Because, yeah, it is. there are all these panels, but like, and the panels are great and they're fascinating. I've been to so many great panels. I wish I could actually go to GDC this year, but, you know, if we have our passes, we're just not going to be able to do anything with them. Um, but the show floor is funny, too, to me, because it is not playstation has like their games out there and stuff but it's really it's really different in the sense that there's guys in a booth trying to sell their middleware and there's a dude giving like his own powerpoint presentation with there's some benches in front of it about this engine that he's trying to sell and there's this other person you know trying to find any developers to bring for id at xbox and they're like there it's just it is a show floor but it is like the antithesis of e3 show floor because it is not for anyone to buy shit it is for it is actually for the developer to sell shit to Mm. you know or for someone to buy an engine or for someone to buy you know, or to like communicate to, with an artist where they need some help on some art. Yeah. Or they, like it, it's, it's just its own different kind of show. So I understand why some people aren't interested in it, and I also understand why there's some frustration that more news doesn't come out of it. Mm-hmm. I think Project Morpheus was probably the biggest piece of news that has come out of GDC in yeah. years. But but uh, PlayStation Move was announced here, Colin. Yeah, kind of changed everything. <laughs> that, that, that did change everything. Uh, but. I, so I understand that that level, but like when you're there and you're on the ground, it is fascinating. I agree with Keza again. Like that, the vault is really super valuable if you're into not necessarily only games, but into the 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 skill and the art of making a game and what goes into it. I've been to so many. Yeah, I've been to so many weird panels. I've walked out of many panels at GDC too because I'm like, this is way over my head. Yep, like, I have yeah, no idea what the hell yeah. you're talking about. They're, they're literally but, showing lines of code, and yeah. you're like, all right, now. Nah, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> for all that, I'm like, done. I'm out. <laughs> Telltale did one a few years ago or a couple years ago about The Walking Dead season one about 
storytelling and how they were learning what they what people were doing based on the decisions they were making. There's like really interesting stuff that might not fit into a 10 minute presentation at E3 or might not fit neatly into a five minute documentary style video that goes on IGN or something like that. But it's it's great for 90 minutes in front of a bunch of your fellow developers. You know, yeah. this is what we learned from the way people play our game and here's how it can help you. And I think that's what's really cool is that everyone wants to help each other. Yep. There's something you said earlier about how games are, you know, a conflagration of art, music, uh, you know, design, all these different... There's one of the things that makes games so interesting for me is that there's all these different elements of skill involved in the creation of a game, you know, from architecture to music to to writing, you know, to narrative design, all this kind of stuff that and everybody has to be good at what they do. But then the, the challenge of making games, and this is what you hear over and over again at GDC or anywhere where developers talk, is that integrating those things with each other, getting them to mesh is so hard because, like, the writer will write something great, but then that just won't work with what the programming needs to do in this scenario, right. and they end up cutting, like, half of the story, and then everything has to be rewritten in two months. And a lot of the time when you play a game and you think, that's a stupid fucking plot twist. What the hell is that? <laughs> Nobody wanted to do it. You know, it's just something that had to be done in order to make the game work together and I think that you get a lot of insight into um, there was something on Kotaku a couple of weeks ago about like things I didn't understand about game development until I did it mm-hmm. which is from a guy who used Anthony. to work for that's right yeah Anthony who used to work for Destructoid and now works for Gearbox and he, he was like Gearbox Oh, has he? That was oh, his whole thing of like, this is uh, like my look back on what I underst- didn't understand. Well, that was super interesting because he was like, I used to be so mean. I used to be like, yeah. what the fuck? This is so stupid. Are the people who designed Assassin's Creed or whatever are complete idiots? And then obviously the experience of making a game and seeing how hard it is to make all these things work together mm-hmm. really made him think, you know, made him understand why sometimes when you play a game, there's some really stupid decision. Sure. And sure. suddenly it's like, okay. Or you have something that, because most games aren't fun until they're like 80, 90% finished which is crazy. Like, you, you see a game and it just doesn't work at all. And then four months before they have to ship it, it suddenly it's fun. Yeah. And I have sympathy for that because sometimes you play a game and there's an idea in it that doesn't work and you're like, okay, well, they didn't know it wasn't exactly. going to work. Like, yeah. they thought By it would work. By the time work. they got to the point of, like, it's implemented, let's play with it, you come back the next day, you're like, ah, it, oh, doesn't it didn't work. work. Yeah. Do we do? <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have any standout moments from any GDCs that you'll never forget? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I do in the sense that you know, I, I just rem- like, again, all of these. The one thing that sticks out to me was the history of GDC panel. That I think this was this was a long time ago. It's probably like 2010, maybe. Um, they did, like, the guys that were at the original game developer conference were all were there, a few of them. The original game developer conference, conference was, I think, like 25 or 30 people. And it was like in it was in the eighties or like late eighties maybe I don't know the I don't remember the exact history but I remember just sitting there it was a really long panel I want to say it was like maybe even two hours <clears throat> and they were going through like all of the the history and how it's grown and how important it's become to kind of be this symbiotic thing where like one person helps another and stuff like that and it was actually quite enlightening and quite uplifting that something so small and so quaint ter- has turned into this thing where this is GDC Prime as it were but there are GDC there are GDCs around the world and, and different kinds of similar GDC style conferences all of as a result of some of these guys kind of just getting together by themselves on their own yeah. you know on their own accord to talk about game development i even talk about games i even to talk about the history of games or the art of games or but just about making games mm-hmm. and i think that that's that sticks out to me i still remember that that uh that panel pretty well yeah for me there was a great uh i mean it's, it's the panels and the discussions right as a fan there was a panel that uh jens anderson did about dc universe online about and it was it was it was legit fascinating not just because i'm a huge dc online fanboy but it was about how they are telling their story and how they're doing dlc and like he showed like their office and their their like note cards connected like any like when you're laying out a show or whatever Mm -hmm. but then how it like would piggyback to it's going to be this dlc which is a year and a half it was like this really fascinating thing of like strings like connecting everything of what they're doing um 
Um, and then there was another great one that I thought was really cool to see from Eric Rudvig back when he was at EDAR. And he talked about reviews and how much reviews actually matter and what that actually means. And he was like, you know, a bad review is better than no review. You want if you if you get reviewed, that's you know you want that because mm-hmm. it sticks in people's mind even to the point of like, well. I heard well, it that wasn't developer that great. did that interesting thing. It wasn't so good, but I wonder what they'll do next. Exactly. Kind of you, there's some cachet to it. There's that. And then, mm-hmm. of course, yeah, the PlayStation Move reveal. Right. <laughs> I infamously wrote, I was just like, I'm sick to my stomach. <laughs> like, I don't know what they're doing. Why are they doing this? Uh, uh, this is actually my first GDC. No Ooh. shit. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously, IGM was based in San Francisco, so there was oh. no point in flying me over from, you know, Britain to go. Uh, and uh, But I do have a great second-hand story. Mm. Disclaimer, I wasn't there. Blah, blah. But um, apparently, do you remember who Jay Allard was? He was the yeah. head of Xbox, the yeah. first Xbox, right? And he was this dude, and he was like a tubby, bearded guy who someone somewhere at Microsoft put him through this, like, makeover image change thing, and he became the face of Xbox, and he was just this, like, tall, skinny, bald dude with, like, a leather jacket who always wore the same clothes, <laughs> and he had an earring, and, and everything, like and he was just like... And I remember when, he, when they announced the Xbox 360, I remember watching the little video that they did, and he's, he was the guy being like, so we just took the Xbox, and we, like, we goosed it, and we tricked it, and we had this concave gesture, and he was just that guy, you know? Yeah. And uh, apparently at GDC, shortly after the Xbox launch, he was in a bar, drunk off his ass on, like, six or seven cocktails and every journalist who walked past he's like come sit down with me man come sit down and just like told all this unbelievable stuff about the first years of xbox just and that's that i like that story because that happens a lot at gdc like you end up talking to somebody and they're telling you all this stuff that you would never know yeah, there's yeah, no way you're ever going to yeah, yeah. get it from an interview or from yeah anything official you just learn you know these high profile games they're like that development was fucked up let me tell you an amazing story about it yeah, yeah. that's and the thing that's it great. seems like kind of like a big party for a bunch of, you were saying earlier like friends you don't see for right. that long like as game journalists you guys have worked with these developers for years and so now it's like you all get to come together and party and talk about everything that you couldn't talk about at the time well that's always the story right everybody makes the the joke the horror the totally dark joke but if you dropped a bomb on the w at like 2 a.m. on any GDC night, you'd wipe out like the entire video. We'd be set back 20 years because everyone's <laughs> there. Like everyone is there. Don't do that if you're like Jesus God. No, it's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I've learned I think more off the record stuff at GDC than anywhere else. And like sure. for all the off the record stuff we've no, we know and we've learned over the years, whatever, just fascinating stories. I just I'm just a consumer of good stories, even if I can't That's tell right, them to yeah. my readers. I know a lot of good stories, and I think many of them. A majority of it has been, you know, at something like GDC, you mm-hmm. know, um, so because everyone is a little more open. Everyone, there's a lot of trust, I think, at GDC, and and um, I think it does show the best parts of the game industry, and I think that's awesome too. Something like Gamescom shows, I think, the worst part of the game industry, which is loud and obnoxious and seething, hype and all these seething kinds of masses things. of people. Yeah, and and just and just, you know, and I think that I'm excited about some of those games, but like I don't like the way it's displayed. I don't like that the the, the I don't like the show it's become, you know. And I'm not pointing only at, game, uh, at Gamescom, but everything like it, where even TGS or something like that. It's just like it's a it's a whole thing, you know. GDC is just what it is. It's not about loud music. It's not about pretty graphics necessarily. It's not about success, you know. It's about it's not about booth yeah. babes. It's not about costume oh. dudes. It's not about it's like everything's stripped away. Like, it's you know nice I mean? to have that soft band at E3 now. Like the last few years, I've noticed a yeah. massive like drop off in the number of like. Yeah, the increasing clad clothing. models. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the correlation is like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's what GDC is. Do you I, care about it now? I mean, I understand its importance now. And it's one of those things where doing this has been really eye opening to me because I've been at IGN and whenever it's GDC, it was definitely always a thing like where I was like, ugh. Like, oh, I need to go to this dumb appointment with somebody and sure. like bring a camera, lug all this equipment, and it's like, for what? You know, and nothing would ever come out of it. But then all of a sudden, something would. Like, I remember one time I was at a. A panel with Notch, 
and he dropped something about Minecraft, and I was like, oh shit, and then the video ended up getting like 300,000 views, and right. I was just like, okay, that was worth it, but then there's 10 other things where I'm just like, ugh, I hate this so much, but here, this is different, like, we've been bringing in all these guys and playing these games, and it's just like, hey, here are fun games. Yeah, you finally get to see it from our perspective, yeah. you know what I mean, thinking back to the GDCs and, like, Great Memories, one I would, I would be remiss not to tell is when David Cage showed up and showed the, the Kara, Kara demo, mm-hmm. remember that? And then I remember I got a, afterwards I got like 15 or 30 minutes with him in a, like one of the side rooms of GDC with a cup of coffee. And we just sat there and shot the shit about games and everything else. And I was such a heavy rain fan and all this different stuff. Like, that is awesome to be able to sit there and have that just kind of openness with developers. It's mm-hmm. a great time to be Real right. conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's nice. It is very Not fun. where they no, With no PR people in the way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Next topic. Metal Gear Solid Five finally got a release date. <laughs> September 1st, 2015. Now we've heard about We're this game. We're not supposed to know that, are we? <laughs> what? But we do. But we Thanks, NeoGaf. Yeah. <laughs> IGN's Whoops. Spanish site or whatever the hell. Yeah, I don't know what the Things hell. Things happen. Yeah, that, it that's, happens. It's bad. Um, so, anyway, September 1st. That's a really interesting release date, in my opinion, because it's earlier than the whole the holiday rush. Sure. And it's not the week of E3, which for some reason games like to do every I once in a while when it's big games. Or oh, Last of Us. So, I want to talk to you guys about release dates, their importance, how important is a worldwide day and date release mm. date, how important is uh, the season that you're releasing your game, is there a strategy to releasing different games at different times, what do you think? I how spent important is worldwide? <laughs> so important, guys! No, I spent all of my childhood and teenage years being irritated by arbitrary three-month waits for video games in Europe, and the reasons for that were like localization and stuff for all the European nations. and. You know, especially Nintendo, it would be freaking years sometimes before. And then sometimes we would just never get the game. And it would be out in America and it would be out in Japan. We'd just never get it here. Um, now, it's very different because sometimes we now get games earlier in Europe than everywhere else. And I don't know why this has happened. But things like, especially Nintendo, again, weirdly, they now release stuff here you know, two or three weeks before the stays. And uh, I think that it's it's stupid now to not have a worldwide release date. We have digital distribution. Right. There is no valid reason for not having... A worldwide release date. If you haven't translated it into all the right languages, then you've just you've fucked up. You've you've, you've badly managed your production at some point. I mean, especially when you're talking about digital and just the world we live in today, right? Yeah. Like Twitter, like trending on Twitter isn't limited. Yeah, to I mean, I mean, you can break it down that way, but usually you want to have an impact yeah. everywhere. Huge. And your Dying Light was a recent strange thing, where yeah. basically they only had a physical release in America, but. In, in Europe, we didn't have physical discs, but we had the digital version. So it was technically released, and it did really well in the charts. And then they had a physical version released last Friday, so like a month on. Hmm. And again, I think that was just probably the production of the discs went wrong or something. But again, that doesn't happen now. You don't need to produce discs most of the time. Mm-hmm. And you have this really stupid thing that happens sometimes where things come out in America on Tuesdays, right? In Europe, usually Fridays. So there's usually like a two or three day gap in the retail but right. then sometimes on Steam it'll be like, oh, the new I don't know Civilization is out, but you have to wait three days even though it's right there. Right, right, yeah, right. That's, See, that's dumb. It's really that, that, was dumb. That. that was the problem that we were having here in the, in the States for a while where things came out, you know, time zones, right? Like mm. everybody in New York gets it at night, but then they'd, well, oh, we're, so we're going to release it at 3 a.m. if you want the digital version. And you're like, what the hell are you doing for New York time? And New York yeah. people would get all mad about it and they'd be like, with this with and the other. Mm-hmm. With Watch and the other. Oh, with yeah. Watch and Whistler. But uh, now they're getting better about that too. PlayStation switched off that, it looks like, finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, 
Well, first of all, per Metal Gear Solid Five, I think it's an ingenious time to release the game. Uh, I don't think they realize that Mad Max is also coming out that same day. So that's gonna be that's gonna I don't be. Think they give a fuck. Uh, <laughs> that's Mad gonna be interesting. Max. Well, Mad, Mad Max is gonna be huge. So uh, it's not gonna be it's not gonna be as metal big Metal Gear. But that's a triple A game. I mean, I'm just saying that I think that they probably thought the schedule was gonna be more clear than it is. Do you, do you uh, think Mad Max is gonna be a triple A game? It's an Avalanche game. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying this is just going off Mad Max, where it's like to me, that's just isn't like, that like oh, a, just sounds... a 30 year old movie? Yeah, yeah. It, well, I think they're redoing it, but it's but the, I'm just basing it on the studio that's making Avalanche makes AAA games, mm-hmm. so I don't think that they're making a and it's been in development for a long time. Um, so I'm just saying, like right off the bat, I think it's a great time to release the game. I think that they thought it was going to be more clear than that. Mad Max is going to sell, um, but. Um, Release dates are essential in finding the releases we were talking this morning with uh, with Nathan from Cappy about the dice roll of, of identifying a date. You really don't know when games are going to come out and who's going to be affected and what game you might have to go up against. And it's like a horrifying... It is actually, like I think, for a lot of developers one of the most and publishers, one of the most horrifying things. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you always feel so sorry when, a, when any developer has a release date and then some other big game that's coming out that week and suddenly everyone's like, oh, we can't review it, sorry, we're all busy on this, and everyone yeah. doesn't buy it. Yeah, exactly. Just, it can really mess you up, right? Which goes back to what Greg was saying about just the review itself being pertinent to, you know, even if it's a bad review. Some of making your, Yeah, some press for your game. Yeah, because, I mean, think about how people dodge Call of Duty and think about how people dodged Grand Theft Auto 5 like it was the yeah, fucking plague. Man. You know what I mean? So like there's just certain bombs you drop. I don't think Metal Gear Solid is one of those bombs, but it's it's a it's a it's a gonna it's a good time for it. And I think what we were discussing earlier is that the paradigm of when games are coming out when we expect big and good games are coming out is shifting. I mm-hmm. think that the holiday season is good and good games come out then, but that's when we expected a lot of our games, like the the, 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 the mass of those games come out. And I actually think now we're seeing games, some of them being released in summer. I think Metal Gear Solid is a cusp on a summer game, which is really kind of interesting. And then you're seeing a lot of stuff in the spring, as we're seeing right now, games that weren't ready for fall that are being pushed. Mm-hmm. I think that's spreading it out. I think, that, I think the conventional wisdom that holiday drives sales is absolutely true, but I also think the conventional wisdom is overstated, that if you find a right the right place to release your game, that that means more than anything. Dying Light like- is the perfect yeah. example. That Dying would have done nothing in November. Yeah, exa- that's exactly <laughs> what I wrote. I wrote about it because I still freelance for IGN and I write a piece once a week over there. And I wrote about Dying Light. I'm like, Dying Light did 1.2 million copies in its first week. Dying Light in its lifetime, if it came out in November, would have done 1 million copies probably. Yeah. So it's like that, because Dying Light was it, mm-hmm. everyone paid attention to it and found out, oh, this is actually a really good game. Like I had no expectations for that game at all. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I wouldn't have had time to play it in November. Yep. But I'm glad it came out when it did because actually it's my favorite game of the year so far. Not that there's you know too much too much out there competing with it. Um, so I think those things matter. I do think that, per Kez's point, there's some complicated marketing and publishing things that keep games from coming out worldwide around the same time. And you yeah. see it a lot with smaller Japanese developers, especially in publishers. Yeah. Like NIS and Atlas are often publishing each other's games in Europe and North America because there's just weird mm-hmm. shit going on that I don't quite understand between all, all the territories. It's bizarreness. But it's not nearly as bad as the days you were talking about. I mean, growing up as a JRPG fan in the you know early 90s and mid 90s and obviously in the eight, even in the late 80s it was common to wait 18 to 24 months to get a mm-hmm. game from uh-huh. Japan and you didn't know what you were going to get I remember uh, like Treasure Hunter G or whatever like Bahamut Lagoon all these like games that came out on Super Famicom that we were like oh we will eventually get these games but they never came out <laughs> you know because you were just, because because there was there seemed to be no rhyme or reason as yeah. to why oh, like man. some of these games would come out and some of them wouldn't I yeah. went totally nuts when I, I lived in Japan in 2008-9 and uh, when I moved there 
I had all these memories from, you know, being a kid, I used to read this magazine called N64 Magazine. It was my favourite. And uh, there was this guy called Will Overton who used to do all the import reviews, right? And I'd be flicking through this and it'd be like, Oh, Sumo 64, Mahjong Simulator, weird RPG that will never happen. I just remember, like, obsessing over these games. Like, in my head, they must be the best games. Because yeah. <laughs> I can't Because I could this. never so have them. And then when I moved to Japan, um, what I didn't realise is that over there, game retail goes back. Like, you go into a game store and they've got ancient games they've got stuff from the late awesome. 80s there like they've just got you know they'll have the wall of playstation 4 and then like upstairs they'll have buckets and buckets of n64 games and snes games and snes games like way back um and every format that's ever existed playstation games and most of them you know they'll have there'll be some rare ones in like a box mm-hmm. with like a special like you know, it's a hundred dollars or whatever yeah and then there'll be just buckets of other ones yeah and i oh man there was this How place much did you blow? so much <laughs> but the thing was, all these n64 games like like osumo 64 which apparently was an amazing multiplayer game uh, super bass fishing and uh, all these just weird games that never came out darby horse racer all these things i bought because they were like 100 yen each which is like a dollar and i ended up buying like 50 japan only J- japan only n64 games and then i bought an, a- an actual n64 to play them every single time i get home to my dorm room plug it in and be like <sighs> and it would always be terrible <laughs> <laughs> every time it would be well or like not not great anyway well but, i think colin when you're talking about the rpgs i think that makes a little more sense just because there's so much text and there's so much like things that need to be translated and all yeah there was a localization stuff. but there's also weird things one of the famous stories of the nes era with squaresoft specifically was that final fantasy 2 the real final fantasy 2 not final fantasy 4 which is Final Fantasy II in the States back in the day, was translated and done. And in fact, at CES that year, they had like pamphlets and a playable versions of the English version of Final Fantasy II, which then just never came out. Couldn't happen. So right. there was like, yeah, there was all sorts of, there's like all sorts of just weird shit going on back then. Why, do you know why that happened? No, I mean, it must have been a publishing. Like, I think that Squaresoft at that time was like, no one's going to buy an NES game. You know, because Super Nintendo had come out in late 91, and so they were they were looking at them. But there was localization and translation issues, too. But also, I think them just kind of seeing the market grow. You have I to think really seriously about releasing a game physically back then. It would yeah. cost you a fortune to release a cart game, mm-hmm. you know, into... And, and there was no... It is now, like, all the, you know, all these old Nintendo games that we never had. Mm-hmm. Like, Earthbound never came out in, in Europe, I don't think. Anyway, games like that, they just stick them on the eShop now or whatever. Mm-hmm. And back then, though... You know, if you thought your game wasn't going to sell loads, you, you really couldn't manufacture all the cartridges. I mean, it would have cost, it would have bankrupted them probably. Yeah, because I mean, that was, a, and that's a great point because there was a lot of big problems. First of all, Nintendo, Nintendo stymied the entire cartridge industry intentionally. Mm. So you had to buy your cartridges directly from Nintendo unless you were like Tension and you wanted to like fuck around with them. Um, and so you would get an allotment of cartridges, which you then had to pay ahead of time. And some publishers were bullish enough to, as we've talked about many times, make sh- basically shadow publishers. So like Konami and Ultra were the same company, yeah. but they were because you can only release five games a year on an NES. They would make they would make two companies to release ten games. But there were other publishers that were much more cautious. Um, and actually, when I did the history of Naughty Dog at IGN, I was talking to you know the founders of Naughty Dog, and they would tell the story about when they made their first Genesis game, which is Rings of Power. Um, which is an RPG that they only could make like a hundred thousand copies yeah. of their game because there were no more cartridges to buy. And when the next allotment of cartridges came out, um, EA published the game and they're like, "We only have X amount of cartridges, and we're giving them to the sports guys, so you, we cannot make any wow, more copies." That's crazy, you know, like, and that's different like, world. yeah, it's like it's a totally different space. So things were just done differently then. Um, but I think a lot of it maybe not necessarily had to do with just the market economics, but also. Translating a game is hard. A lot of the translations we got were terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you only see that when you see a retranslation of Final Fantasy VI or Final Fantasy Tactics or games like that. And then the the process of getting them re- you know localized and then going through cert again and all that kind of stuff. Is it worth the money? Is it worth the time? I think that JRPGs had such a long tail in the in the United States they, that 
there was with Final Fantasy two, for instance, I don't think the proof was in the pudding yet. Mm-hmm. I think when you saw a game like Chrono Trigger. Mm. Right at the, the right before PS One came out, I think that was the proof, which is why like during the PS One era, we were getting like two good RPGs a year for five years. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think that times had just changed at that point. But you couldn't just throw something out there and see if it sold. You right, know, which yeah. you can do now. You know, you can put something on Steam and just be like, yeah. whoops, see if anyone wants it. Yeah. yeah, it's so much better. We get so many more games now. Mm-hmm. It really is so much awesome. better. Like the the internet has completely revolutionized how how games are played mm-hmm. and how we can just have access to them. But on the other hand, like one of my I had a friend who was extremely good at knowing about obscure ads shit PS2 games and he introduced me to a bunch of just completely weird things that were Japan only and his entire world basically was learning about these games and that's kind of gone now yeah <laughs> so yeah, like his, yeah, yeah. his specialty is now is now gone mm-hmm. but you know things like Tulip which I think actually came out in America weirdly, but it was a like a kind of isometric RPG where you're a little guy in a village and you want to kiss a girl that you like, so you have to work your way up to Been her there. by kissing all the other people in the whole village. Starting yeah, off, well. starting off with the gimp who lives in the sewers, mm. and you basically good place to start. It's the weirdest game. Uh-huh. Oh, it was great. <laughs> So I that think that didn't come even, out like here. back then during the PS2 era. Like the the weird import thing was kind of like a, a marketing tactic. Right? I remember yeah, it was. It was like, yeah. What was the name? Ka, Ka the mosquito game. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We were like this mosquito that needs to go and like suck blood from people and stuff. I remember like for months reading about that in OPM, where it was just like, "Here's this game and it's gonna come to America and it's crazy." And it was like Look at that these crazy nah. Japanese yeah. games. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. And like so that was such an interesting tactic for them to use. There was Rule of Rose, which was a really horrible horror game. There were loads of PS2 horror games that never made it out of Japan. I think Rule of Rose may have made it to Europe. I don't know if it came to America. Hmm. Um, really scary had a dog in it like you you were adventuring with a dog and nice. I thought cool a game with a dog I bought this in Japan and it was just the most horrible thing I'd ever played I think after about <laughs> Peter Mann, after about like, 10 yes. minutes you're like locked into a coffin and children are urinating on you and I was like what the Again, what is this um, and then things like Gitaru Man which did come out yeah and, uh, but I, I had a lot of like weird Japanese games on my PS2 that I was kind of proud to know about you know sure, it was like, yeah, it was like yeah, a cred yeah. thing and that, mm-hmm. that just doesn't really happen now but now yeah. it's like there's, there's such a the, the people who know about the cool independent game oh, before that's anybody it, yeah. else the, knows the about indie it. Like, I don't, like, there's so much shit on Steam that mm. I'll be talking to people and they'll tell me about a game. I'll do podcasts with fans and I'll be listening. I'm like, oh, great. What is that? Cool. And I'll click over to buy it because it sounds so awesome. And it came out in 2012. And yeah. I'm like, Jesus. I, you know what I mean? There's too many games yeah. now, which is great. That's what we need. But There was a talk yesterday at GDC. Um, there was a chart that came up showing how many games were, were applied, um, were given to the app store for certification every day and it's like thousands every oh, yeah. single day that's insane As, how are you supposed to keep track of that my my partner used to work at pocket gamer um which obviously is an ios and android and you know pocket things site and uh you know he was reviewing kind of 30 games a week in a roundup and still barely and that was years ago when there yeah. were like yeah. maybe 100 games a week sure. not a thousand when, and it, now when it was just... levi buchanan times and you had a shot at knowing <laughs> everything yeah, yeah. <laughs> but right now it's like i mean there's no way anybody can know the mobile market right. you know, they mm-hmm. can't know every and it's the same with steam like there's hundreds a month on steam which yeah. is many many fewer but still too many to still, know yeah you can't play everyone have an yeah. experience with it yeah i feel like nowadays with like let's plays and twitch and all that stuff like those are the games like your friend that like talked about all the the obscure japanese games and all that stuff like now you look at the top twitchers and they're just they're just playing these or pewdiepie pewdiepie is a perfect example what the fuck is Games is he playing? Yeah, he plays Call of Duty, but then he also plays all these really, really weird. He makes games. I mean, he he makes games, not literally makes them, but makes them in the he sense makes that them he yeah. A thing. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he yeah. made yeah. a Flappy Bird takeoff. I think you know he did a video about that and that sent it crazy. But that's a perfect example. You know, like where the fuck did Flappy Bird come Skate from? Skate Three. He was playing like, Skate Three last year. Uh huh. And they had to start reprinting the game in Europe. Yeah, that's right. I forgot really? about that. Yeah, I, I forgot about that story. Because was kids were wanting to buy it, and so they ended up reprinting Skate Three. Damn. See, that's crazy. fucking awesome. Yeah. 
All right, going going back to the release date conversation for a second. So, looking at this big list Game Informer has of 2015 video game releases. So, January, there's a ton, and Dying Light was kind of the standout. February, we got um, The Order, IDARB, Helldivers. Evolve, Helldivers, all this stuff. Well, Helldivers, technically, today. There was a, there was a, a big... A big oh, is it? Yeah, okay, I, cool. I did not realize it was March. <laughs> so, there you go. Now we're in March, Helldivers. Thank you. And, um, and La Mulana EX. A million... PS4 remasters because that's going to happen forever. <laughs> you know, and then you get into April, and so we start. Hey, we had seeing... Monster. Nobody mentioned Monster Hunter. We had Monster Hunter. Monster Hunter. We did. And Majora's Mask on 3DS. Yes. We need to talk about Monster Hunter. <laughs> you know that we got. I the Monster we got. We got a lot of games coming. We're seeing the the release dates and stuff, and then obviously since it's still a little early in the year, as you go on, there's very few dates that we actually yeah, yeah, have. Today we got a we got a date for Final Fantasy X and X2 on PS4. Mm. Um, then we got June 2nd, Arkham Knight. Dun, 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 dun. So that's like a big deal. August, we have nothing confirmed. Isn't that E3 week? Why do people keep doing this? Yeah, like, why is that? Well, hold on. Let's oh. continue this. There's got to be a reason. Second. Sorry, my bad. Then, then the last one, then we got September. We got Mad Max and Metal Gear Solid 5. Nothing confirmed after that. So Arkham Knight on June 2nd, the week of E3. Or the, Are we sure it's E3? No, it's not no, E3. It's E3's, E3's like in the middle of the month. Tenth or, oh, is like it? Tenth okay. Yeah, E3's they late did it with year. Last of Us, and that's not like the. And there's other games they have Didn't done. Didn't you end up coming sure. to E3 late because you were having to do Last of Us? I, ha I left. Uh, yeah, well, that was what I was doing before the Last of Us, and then I left that night or that early morning to get more shit done for it. Because yeah. I remember writing a story in the airport because remember the last of us was broken when it came out. Yeah. And I was remember writing that that up because everyone was freaking the fuck out. Like, you gave it a ten. And I'm like, it wasn't broken for me. What game isn't broken when it comes out now? This is like what game isn't broken. And this is you know we'll presumably talk about this a little bit later, but this is a major reason why almost everyone now just doesn't review games until they're out. Right. Because there's smart too much now. But like that's that's interesting because there has been a couple other games. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but yeah, Last of Us, and there was other ones that I remember even being at IGN where we were like, shit, how are we gonna cover this? We're all here doing this. Yeah, stuff. I, remember, I remember Charles. What the hell was he reviewing during E3 once? Oh, um, no, no, um, it was. Um, it's a game like that. Shit. Sounds like Bioshock. No, I, no, I, remember, <laughs> I remember Charles brought a game. Oh no, I think it might have been Duke Nukem or something like that. I remember like when they finally released the, that. You know, shitty Duke. Yeah, yeah, game. Yeah. I remember him bringing his Xbox 360 to E3 to play. I think it was for that game. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, I, I mean, there are it, other there games. are other examples that we can't remember. Yeah. Now going back to that though, so I think Arkham Knight is one of those games where it doesn't really fucking matter when it comes out. Like they can avoid the holiday season because they're just, it's going to sell and yeah. like people are going to want that. Last of Us, it's it's pretty similar there, and even releasing during the E3 time kind of makes sense just because then it's like. Everyone's obviously going to be talking about it, so it's like, hey, here's the thing you could buy right now. Yeah, you're so engaged. That's cool. But then, yeah, going to September, September 1st for Metal Gear Solid 5, I feel like that might be one of the earliest AAA um, holiday releases we've ever got. Like, I remember yeah, Halo. Usually, usually it's late September onwards, isn't it? Yeah, like Halo 3 was September 15th, I want to say, when it came out. And that was like, holy shit, like, you guys are going real early. But I remember there was some reason for that. It might have been a Gears of War or something else that they were okay. trying to like separate from or that was when call of duty was really kind of starting to kick ass but that's insane like how much earlier do you think they can get than that i mean it's not how much earlier it depends on what you think of the industry right now and does it matter to be that close to holiday season you know what i mean a lot of times when you're pushing and going to holidays and doing all these things like you're trying to hit it so that your financials look right if you're that kind of company right and that's where these indie games step up where it's like Fuck it. We'll release whatever we want whenever we want to yeah. release it, and this is our time, and blah, blah, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. It doesn't have to fit into Q2 for our profit projections. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, 
for Konami and Kojima, I'm sure they want to shine. And so, like, it's like we could go out, we could go and be the traditional holiday launch and come on to end of November or whatever. But why would we go to the end of October, beginning of November when we can go to September and stand all alone for hopefully knock on wood a month you mm-hmm. know, before there is another main contender to try to steal our limelight away? Especially mm-hmm. if they believe in the game and it's going to come out and do you know nines and tens and whatnot. People mm-hmm. only have so much money ultimately. Exactly. But it's interesting, like when, when when games come out that are just a little bit, you know, when you think, oh, this could have done with an extra few months. Yeah. It's almost always because whichever publisher it is, 2K or whoever has to hit their Q2 financials projection, you know, and so they can't be delayed from March 1st to March 9th. It just can't, you Mm. know? Even the few days becomes a complete disaster. Hmm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, my, my reading the tea leaves totally on the outside, I know nothing about this, is like, this seems like the right time for Metal Gear. Let's not make any mistake. Konami, with the exception of Metal Gear and Pez, has nothing. So, like, they need this game to shine, you know? They need this game to do very well. Konami is, like, not the level of publisher that they used to be. Certainly not. But they have this game, and this game is going to be big because they killed Castlevania. So it's like now you have Metal Gear, and and ironically, they killed Castlevania after doing a really nice job with the original Lords of Shadow. No idea what they were thinking with that sequel. No idea what they were thinking with that 3DS game. No idea what they're thinking not making Metroidvania games annualized. Um, But uh, this is the game that we've been waiting a long time for. When you think about Konami's IP and the studios that are working for them and the games that are coming out, I mean, this is it. So, like... It is a smart thing for them to avoid the fall, and the game might be might be done sooner than that. But maybe you know, I think there might be something said about maybe not wanting to release your game in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there was people a lot of rumors outside. about that. People yeah. people were expecting mm-hmm. it, so it's it, one of those things. People aren't at their computers. Mm-hmm. You know, video games. What we do here on Twitch, it's all a distraction mm-hmm. from you know it's something to tune into to be a part of. And so yeah, if you're out living your life during the summer, you're a kid. You're not worried. If you're most kids, you're not yeah. worried. Like we were. The, we well, were still like, home we, we were, all, we were all nerdy children. Yeah. I presume we're all nerdy adults. Yeah. So like we're, we're sitting there in July, like why are there no games? But you know, the vast majority of people are just out like climbing mountains, fishing, yeah. going to Spain. Yeah, God. you know, going to Spain. <laughs> yeah, here you are. They're out fishing. You're getting these like import bass games yeah. for the N64. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm fishing too. I was just saying, she, she was saying, I'm fishing too. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes. About, just about, about about fishing. What are no, your no, thoughts on fishing, Colin? I don't have any thoughts on fishing. Yeah, no. I can't imagine. No, no, real, I never really thought much about it. No. Really? No. Again, another weird thing, because I'm from, I'm from Long Island. And you gotta get it, when you get there, you gotta like do to Matt fish. Noel when you do the Greg Miller documentary. You had sea? Didn't huh? you? You had the sea. Oh, I'm saying, I'm, I'm from, well, the ironic thing is I'm from an island, and <laughs> yeah. I hate seafood. Okay. And that's like our big thing. Oh, that's a shame. Because you know, like a lot of America genuinely doesn't have sea, so it makes sense that there'd be no fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, you know, fishing lakes and ponds, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, yeah, I think th- I, I think this date makes sense for them. I think Mad Max is going to steal a little bit of their thunder. I think mm-hmm. people that are into Mad Max are going to get that game. I have all the faith that Avalanche is making a good game mm-hmm. with that. But yeah, this seems to make sense. for like Konami needs the game to shine, and they need time to sell it, I think, too. Because it's a game that I think people are going to get excited about. It is not a word-of-mouth game, necessarily, because people like Metal Gear, and they're going to buy Metal Gear. Yeah. Uh, but it might be a word-of-mouth game in the sense that some people have fallen off, and it has been a long time. Remember, it's been... Might it's be been, a breakout it, Metal Gear as well. I'm sorry? Might be a breakout Metal Gear. Yeah, exactly, because it's been seven or eight years since the last Metal Gear mm-hmm. game, too, so people... I mean, the last God. core Metal Gear, not Peace Walker. No, I know, but I'm just, yeah, I, I wasn't <laughs> even offended. I just thought, and I was like, holy shit, yes, Like, Metal four. Gear Solid 4 came out in 2008. So wow. this is going to come out. He's walking the yeah. ground zeros. No, no. Yeah. So it's 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 a shrewd move, I think. Mm. I think it's gonna pay off, and they're gonna. Yeah. Get like, it does look so ridiculously good. I yeah. can't wait. Yeah. September first, man. Can't come soon enough. I skipped MGS four. 
played one, two, three, and then skip four. And oh I've man, we can't, we can't even talk about this right now. We need to move on to the next topic. But my God, I know. I want to talk it's about really that for a million. You, you got to get on. I've been waiting for like a weekend oh. for, for for eight years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. All right, Bass Masters on yeah, this. Yeah, shit. <laughs> some important. Some important. Next fishing. topic: trading in video games. I want to hear you guys' stories about this. If you have any, if you ever made any bad trade-ins, if oh you ever made any good trade-ins, the reason this them. comes up is because out of nowhere this week, GameSpot, GameStop, <laughs> my bad. They uh, Kevin and Ord's like, I'll allow you to trade yeah. your PS2 back. To <laughs> they me. announced <laughs> that you could release or you could trade in your PS2 for twenty five dollars if you also give your all the the AC adapter and the, the accoutrements. Yeah, and the DualShock Two, twenty five dollars. If you don't have that stuff. And you just have the PS2, you get twenty dollars. Oh, which is like, might as well just what? keep it. Yeah. So yeah, first off, don't trade your hardware. Don't, don't trade don't your hardware. Do that. That's a dumb. Decision. Don't trade your hardware. Second off, it's like really like you could sell the DualShock Two for more than five dollars on eBay. So it's laziness. That's that's dumb. You couldn't. But yeah, no, no way. I keep, dude, trust me, DualShock Twos are not. I mean, you cannot get them for cheaper than five. You're I'm going eBay. Go for it. Keep on. I've tried for <laughs> Let's Plays and stuff. Anyways. That just blew my mind. I don't know why they did this. This seems super random because they weren't accepting trade-ins for a while. For it's PS2. because they saw they saw demand. It's the same thing that happened with those Wii games, like yeah. like where Metro Prime Trilogy and Xenoblade mm-hmm. and like some other uh, Last Story. I think like these games, like there was like this demand, this crazy demand where people were getting mad at GameStop for selling some of these used copies for a lot of money, and they're like, there is demand, like, and we are a company that makes money. So I think that when they shut off the PS2 spigot, as it were, like when um, it was like 2012, I think they were like, we're not taking anymore. It's probably because they had a shit ton of PS2s. Yeah, like, what are we gonna do with many, all these? Yeah. And then they were like, oh, we need more now, mm-hmm. and so they're just replenishing the stock because um, people are there are there is a lot. We're all kind of old, mm-hmm. and I think that we take for granted <laughs> the fact that some. I mean, it's amazing to me because I remember getting my PS2 when it came out, and like like it was yesterday. But there are people that did not experience that console. Yeah, and well, so there's some interest in it. And there's yeah. not bringing them to PlayStation also, now, so fuck it. Also, <laughs> like I think I think there's a major thing. Like if you've got kids, right, and you don't necessarily have a ton of money, and you can't be affording to buy your kid a PS4 and every new game that comes out, you can yeah. buy. 50 games for the PS2 with the amount of money you'd spend sure. on yeah. like a year's worth of wait, not, you know a year's worth of PS4. Mm-hmm. Something I'd be really interested deal. to see is is the reason that the PS2 now has a resurgence because those games are really hard to play anywhere else like you can't download the majority of those games. Yeah, the you know, like PS1 classics those are a thing. You can print out, download majority of the PS1 games in some form or another. <laughs> but I think PS2 is way more of like a, you need those discs. Yeah, yeah you need Like the majority that. of the PS2 games I would want to go back to, there is no way for me to play it because it's not backwards compatible and you can't download yeah. it and all this stuff. I'm Spider-Man so glad too. I didn't trade in yeah. all my PS2 games. I kept all of them. Yeah, by that I generation I had smartened up because to, to your to your question, mm-hmm. I had a, a, a catastrophic blunderous encounter at EB in 1997. We've all been there. And I wanted a PS1 so bad, mm. so I can play Final Fantasy VII. And uh, it was so it was the summer. It was before Final Fantasy VII even came out. And I traded most of my Super Nintendo games um, <gasps> oh, to get it. Like so, my heart's breaking yeah. right now. So and I like and I mean I had just awesome like an awesome SNES catalog. And I went back and bought them again later when I had more money. But it was like that was so stupid. Yeah. You know, I wish someone was like, "What are you doing?" Like the people at the store being like, "Why are you selling? <laughs> We're giving you ten dollars for Final Fantasy three. We're giving you twelve dollars for you know Chrono Trigger. We're giving you eight dollars for you know Robo Truck, whatever random ass games I had." And, and I was, then you're and paying was, like sixty dollars to get it back yeah, five exactly, years later. Yeah. Exactly, and it's like Jesus. Like 
I'm glad I got my PS1 because that was really a game-changing moment for me. No pun intended, but uh, that was... I'll never forget that. I was like, why did I do this? Why did I do that? And I remember, and I, but I remember the rule being... I was so excited because they would give you no less than $5 for your games. That wow. was like a rule there. Things have and, changed. And <laughs> I had NHL 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, like Madden games, like all yeah, these data yeah, games. And I'm like, games. and I was making like a shit ton of money off of these, but then it would balance out by me getting nothing for these Squaresoft and these Enix games made by Quintet and all these great defunct yeah, developers. Sure. Um, plus my first party games and stuff. So it was, uh, I'll never forget that. That was terrible. And that really taught me my lesson because that was in eighth grade or me going in eighth grade. And by ninth grade, I had started going on eBay and collecting games again and like getting them all. And I never saw my my NES games. Thank God I wasn't that stupid. Uh, but I started having to collect them again. And how much money I lost because I already yeah. had them. Yeah. You know, man. God, man, my I have so many trading stories. Like my life was trading in games to get new ones yeah. and stuff. And I made so many bad decisions. Like I did that so many damn times. It's like you'd think I'd learn, but I didn't. But you had to do it. Yeah. I did the same yeah, thing. You, you it was the way to keep, yeah. stay current. There was no other way. Like, I, I Unless think, you were incredibly rich, or your parents were. Yeah, or your parents. Were. Yeah. My parents were like, "Nah, I'm not." Nah, this. I you, go like you three, three, I got three games a year if I if I was lucky. I go yeah. for my birthday, I go on for Christmas, and my brother go on for his birthday. Oh like, yeah, so that was the deal. I think the the best trade I ever made. This is blasphemy to most people. But I had an extra copy of I had Pokemon Blue and Pokemon Red that someone like gave me at some point, and I traded it in for Star Wars Episode One Racer on the N sixty four. But I had another one, so I was fine with that. And that was my favorite trade because I was like, I actually really enjoyed that game, right. and I, I had a lot of fun with it. But I made some really bad decisions. I I got a PS two and I had no games because that was the deal. Mom was like, I'll get you the PS two, but like you need to wait on the games. And it's like, well, that sucks. And I really wanted a game. So badly that I traded in multiple N64 games for Crazy Taxi. Because yeah, it was yeah, one yeah, of the cheap yeah. PS2 games. Just because I wanted it. Oh, you played it. on PS2? Yeah. That's where I played, too. Oh, so, really? Yeah. I had the blue bottom. It's like not even a real PS2 game. It was one of those stupid CD ones. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on. But yeah, I did that. And that was just such a stupid decision. And that I here's immediately my, regretted. Here's what I want to talk about. And I know I'm I'm not among... You'll throw, throw me to the fire. Was it really a bad decision? Yeah. It was. Why? Because I'm like Colin. I go back and I'm like, I've rebought in so many of those games yeah. just because I like collecting these things. I think I, like I know what you're getting them. at, though. Like, these things can weigh you down if you have like 20 years worth of video games like clogging up. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, in my house, uh, I live with my partner who is 42 years old and oh my God, so many video games. Just yeah. boxes of like ancient computer shit. And it's all rubbish mostly. And I'm like, yeah. like seriously, can we pair that? Because I paired my collection down to like my best games. The ones mm -hmm. I don't want to get rid of, and then I got rid of the rest, and I have like a nice four shelf, still too many four shelf <laughs> kind of thing. But from now on, like I'd be quite happy from from this day forward to never buy another physical game again. Yeah. Quite happy to download. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But with him, is he's got like years and years and years and years and years worth, and he never traded anything in, and yeah. he hoarded all of it. And I kind of get where you're coming from because it does start. To it's one of those things where you, know, like, you at, down. at our house, right? Like I have my the Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid on PlayStation One, the double disc set. I have Spider Man on from NeverSoft. I have like Genesis or uh, Genesis Spider Man. Then I have. Uh, like a bunch of different Ghostbuster ones, right? But m most importantly, Ghostbusters on Sega Master System, which is this defining thing for me, and Ghost House and stuff like that. Like these are sentimental things. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. But like I traded in everything, and I know at my dad's house there's still a box somewhere that has all of my Master System games in it. No Master System, we sold that at a garage sale, but that's there. But my Genesis collection's gone. When I when N64 No Mercy reset on me on the third cart for like the se seventh time, I traded it all in and got my PS1 and then traded that all in. And, you know, for me, it was like wiping the slate clean to go just because I never go back. You know what I mean? Like I I'm not I'm not somebody who's like, oh man, I really want to play Final Fantasy whatever today. Or, I yeah. See, play. I, I am that guy. I, I love think that's it. That makes sense. It's just a different thing of like... But you yeah. know, a lot of the time, like my games that I have 
now. They they sit on the shelf for, you know, nine-tenths of the year. But yeah. then very occasionally, like we do these um, Kotaku UK game nights now um, in, where I live in England, in Brighton. We do them in London as well. And we have games spanning the whole the whole history of games there. So, you know, we'll have like Sports Friends and Towerfall and sure. PS4. But then I can bring like Amplitude, my PS2 version oh, of Amplitude. God, I can just Amplitude. pluck that out and yeah, just yeah, be yeah. like, we're setting that up over here. And, you know, I've got my massive N64 collection. Mm-hmm. And I often put like something just random on in the corner and people can explore that. And that's the time that I'm that's pleased cool. that I've still got them. But a lot of the time... You know, I'm like, do I really need this copy of Red Faction Armageddon? Like, yeah. do I? Am I ever gonna? I'm never gonna play that again. So well, I, I agree with paring down. Yeah. So that was the thing. So the PS2 era, like, to get my PS3, I had to trade in a ton of games, and I schemed the living shit out of GameStop, and it was awesome because they, I, I, I like piled deals on top of deals on top of deals, where it was like the the 50% <laughs> trade in. There was a bonus if you're this power member or whatever. I ended up like doing a really good deal, and I got my PS3 and Metal Gear Solid 4. But I did have to trade in like half my PS2 collection, and I did. That was the first time where I was like, I'm not trading everything. So I kept my Amplitude, I kept my Final Fantasy X, I kept NBA Street Volume Two. Of course, like these games that like meant something. Sure, to me. yeah, so yeah, you yeah. were another of the 800 people that bought Amplitude. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> oh, the odds of this love, are so love low. Love Amplitude, um, but I kept those games because they meant something to me. But then there was a ton of other ones that I I, I traded, and some of those I do regret now. Like I went back and I was like. I randomly want to play Animusha 3. Sure. And it's just like, fuck, I don't have it. The, the worst thing... Animusha game. No, 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 no. The only <laughs> one I ever, oh, the only game I ever tr- rebought, re- re- traded in and then rebought later was uh, Spider-Man 2 on PS2. Because I, I, I played it, I'd done everything, and then I was like, whatever. And then I went out for a summer to an internship in D.C. And there, I would just come home on the weekends and like, there's nothing really to do or whatever. And I'd just be like, I kind of feel like just swinging around, swinging New York. around New York. It's like doing stuff, and like that's what I would do. I went out, rebought it, came back, thinking Budweiser, yeah. there, drink and swing. Saying, saying the the scheme story right there, it reminded me of my ultimate video game scheme that I ever pulled off. Yeah, was um, EB was doing a thing when the PSP came out, where you can trade in three. Um, current gen games, which at the, at the time was Xbox, GameCube, PS2, and you can get a PSP game, and. I looked at the list and I did a lot of research of what games you could trade in and all that stuff. Yeah. And I was like, what's the cheapest game you can possibly get to trade in? And, you know, obviously at that point, they wouldn't let you do what you did with like every sports game because like they just would give you nothing for it. And yeah. like, 20, exclude, 20 cents. Yeah. That, so it excluded yeah. everything. But I found out that uh, Nine Shots Outlaw Golf <laughs> Holiday Edition was the, the cheapest game you could get for a dollar and they would let you do this. And I found the only place that sold it was a Blockbuster exclusive. So I went to every Blockbuster that was like anywhere in the area and I bought every copy they had. How many? And, oh, I mean, I don't remember, but it got to the point where I think at the end, I, mean, I guess... Are we talking s- dozens? Um, or like six? It was enough that I bought, I got every single PSP launch game and Ooh. I got so many PSP launch games extra that I traded those in to get the PSP. <laughs> Oh! <laughs> so for like sixty bucks, I got a PSP and all the watch games. Damn! I dude. had a good scheme. Death, Death Junior. Awesome. I had a good scheme when the Dreamcast went, um, because I uh, so my local game, uh, which was EB in, uh-huh. in the UK, my local game was selling Dreamcasts for uh, twenty pounds, which is nothing, and. Uh, so basically, I bought a bunch of Dreamcasts, like traded in Dreamcasts, and then the other place down the road was buying Dreamcasts for twice as much. So I traded in all these Dreamcasts again. I got like four of them, and then I traded them on. I kept one. And then the other thing, which was the same year, was that they had a thing where they were getting rid of N64 stock. And so from their catalog, you could buy any N64 game for £5, which is nothing. 
And I went for like the rarest ones and they had like four copies of Conqueror's Bad Fur Day left. And the same store was buying them for £25. <laughs> same store? Yeah. And I, li- I literally went to the store to pick up these four copies of Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, picked them up, went thank you very much, and then just went to the counter and was like, I'd like to trade three of these in, please, for £60. That's great. Damn. That is a good, good scheme. Awesome. That's a good scheme. The, oh, the, the schemiest one I ever did, and it was dirty and filthy and I shouldn't have done it. But uh, in <laughs> Colombia, I had the my PS2, and like I'd already bought it. The, uh, I had my PS2 and it was failing. It was dying or whatever. The disk drive was dying. And so it only read the blue bottom things because oh, i had a God. copy of the sims that happened to me so what i did is i took it to the tiger pawn the <gasps> pawn store i was like hey i want to i want to tr- pawn this uh ps2 in this game and they tested it with that game it oh, works. works great and yeah. took it and i was like i'm so, I'm so that happened I'm to me disgusting. i couldn't play i couldn't play god of war on my ps2 yeah no god of war 2 by the time that game it just wouldn't read yeah i had a there was this thing you could do to make your ps2 to region free without right. chipping it which yeah. was like I think I can't remember what it was called but it was a stupid piece of plastic with mm-hmm. a hook on the end and you had to you like pull out the yeah, disc tray yeah. you had to like jimmy the front off the disc tray and then like put this bit of plastic and just root around in there magic gate yeah that's I magic it magic oh, uh, I remember. for us it was magic called magic gate and uh, you know you'd pull it out this is how I played Guitar Hero because Guitar Hero didn't come out for ages in Europe and it was my favourite game of ever mm-hmm. um and yeah, I totally ruined my PS2 doing that. Just like jamming, like drunk, trying to play Guitar Hero. Like just put it, just move it around a bit. Just pull, yeah. pull it out. And yeah, it, my my PS2 didn't last very long. Yeah, it's, it's it funny that the shady shit you had to do to your consoles to get them to play the games you wanted them to play. I remember, I still remember getting this thing on PS1. I don't remember the name of it, but it was like a thing you put in the back port, and then you had to take a a, a spring and put it onto the hook so that you can leave your lid open. Then you had to put like a. You could just match it, couldn't you, for yeah, this one? Uh, I, I guess. Like the, the whole thing was to make the lid stay open yeah. so that you could read an American disc. And then when it started the PS1 thing, you would take it out yeah. and put in the whatever, the European or Japanese disc. And then it would just continue as if it had already like, read, read the thing or whatever. I'm like, it's so yeah. weird. Like, I think you could do that with a matchstick. I seem to remember like propping up various bits of console with matchstick. I can't remember if it was like Dreamcast or PS1 or what. So yeah. It's so weird. Like, you know, the good news is that you really don't have to do that shit anymore, <laughs> yeah, yeah. to play the games you want to play. These are all stories everyone watching is like, God, tell us about the war or something, old yeah. people. <laughs> God, oh, what, matchstick. Whatever. Oh, but I just want to say really quick, just distra- as distressing as that Super Nintendo to PlayStation story was, I didn't understand that CDs could not save. Like, you couldn't save your game on CD. And I remember being all set up, and uh, Final Fantasy VII came out, and uh, I was like, why can't I save my game? Oh, man. And and it was like, I needed a fucking memory card. And I was like... I'm like I have no money left. I have no games to trade left. And I like and I remember beg- like begging my parents being like D- like listen guys like I made an error. I can't like I did I went through this whole fucking ordeal and I can't play this game now. I need a memory card. That's such a tragedy. And yeah. I was like, oh, they geez. buy for you? Yeah. They did. It, but, but it was like the bootleg one, not yeah, the no. PlayStation one. I, my my I, first I, PlayStation one, one had a fucking giant basketball on it. I'm like, God damn, like a 3D basketball. My, my PS1 one was the, the blue EA Sports one. The guy had to be like, no, it's from Mad Cats, but it will save your game. Like, you sure? I'm like, all right. <laughs> God, remember all those, like, junky third-party controllers yep. used to be just Sounds terrible with like a turbo mm. button yeah, yeah. there's always a turbo it. button always. and it only helped in Final Fantasy 10 getting Lulu's special weapon anyways final topic for the show yeah is traditional game journalism dead now I bring this up because I think this is a very interesting group of people to talk about sure this. yeah we got us X. We, we left IGN to to essentially we left traditional games journalism to do fucking this crazy weird internet video thing then you left IGN to do a different form of games mm-hmm. journalism. Yep. 
Uh, uh, so I think yes, traditional games journalism is dead, as in the journalism that we grew up with in like the nineties and two thousands. Yep, it's gone, because the purpose of that, of the magazines I used to buy and the early websites that I used to read, the purpose of those was to tell me stuff about games, to give me information, give me screenshots, give me like you know this game's what coming out. Feel like, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now. People can get that information however they want. Like they can get it from PS Blog, they can get it from YouTube, they can get it wherever. Like being the gatekeepers to information is no longer a viable thing. So that version of the games press is gone. But I think what's come up in its place is much more interesting and varied. Like people still have this thing where they think of the whole of the games media as journalism. About twenty percent of it is journalism. The rest is entertainment, criticism, yep. all this other really interesting stuff that we do now. And you know, my job about half of my job is reporting, and then the rest of it is criticism and entertainment. And you know what? What a lot of people do on YouTube is essentially games entertainment. It's like a TV show about games, yep. and uh, that's fine. That can coexist. And there's this weird perception that like, oh, the games media is dying, and it's not. It's just diversifying, and it's become a bigger thing. Like games journalism is now only a part of the games media, which is mm-hmm. a much bigger thing. Um, but I think it's a really interesting time to be involved in talking about games. I've been doing this for ten years. I started off on a magazine when I was seventeen years old, and I wrote. I remember the first thing I was to do. I won't name the magazine. I was asked to write a preview of Okami. And I was like, I haven't played Okami. I've never even seen it. And they were like, just go look at it on GameSpot and then write it from that. <laughs> that was genuinely, genuinely what we had to do on that magazine. And uh, that that was, you know, that's what print was at. That's the stage yeah. that print was yeah. at at that yeah. point, you know. And I, I left print after a year because although I liked having, like, a magazine in my hands that I'd written because that was exciting, uh, I just realized that, you know, most of the companies who had, you know, print magazines, they weren't looking at the internet. And meanwhile, I'd grown up internet. Yeah. I had my own website when I was a teenager, you know, and I read a lot of IGN and Eurogamer and a bunch Fire. of other stuff. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, so I went into online after that. And I did, you know, I worked with Eurogamer and a bunch of other websites for a long time before I joined IGN and now at Kotaku. And even in that time, like, it just changes every year. Every mm, year it yeah. changes. And, like, at IGN, it was very much like a combination of, you know, I don't want to say marketing, but, like, publisher-driven, here's the thing we want you to show your audience stuff and then entertainment and then like criticism and reviews and at Kotaku um, it's different again like a lot of what we do is post-release so it's like uh, I do a lot more reporting I do a lot more investigating of things because we don't do previews at all and uh, again like a lot of sites now don't do previews for instance it's becoming old-fashioned and a lot of people aren't doing scored reviews anymore you know one by one so I don't think IGN will ever give up scores and I don't think they necessarily should but a lot of other sites have been given up scores for years so again like if I were to say is the games journalism that I that I started doing when I was 17 dead pretty much yeah Mm -hmm. or it's on the way but the thing I'm doing now is, is a different thing. And it's, I think it's more interesting. And it's in the same wheelhouse. That's the thing is, yeah, mm-hmm. everything's just evolving and changing. And it's what I've been saying to people for years. So, you know, I remember four packs ago, there was a panel that was basically like, independent game site, can, how, can you compete with IGN, mm-hmm. GameSpot? And, you know, and the answer, and I, I, was, I read it and I went to the panel and I was like, the answer is no. You, yeah. you shouldn't try to. You should do something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You should be driving people to you in a different way. And that's why previews are falling off and scores are falling off because... Do you want to be one of the three dozen sites that are like, this game's a 9.5? I don't know. Like, figure out a better way to talk about games in the way people want to hear you talk about games. Yeah, right? yeah like, entirely. I don't need to score something, for, you know, if we like no, it. Hate, like everyone it. knows I hate scores, too. And, I, and like, the... Like, I agree with what Keza was saying. Like, uh, the, people conflate games media with games journalism. Mm-hmm. I think that what Keza does is journalism. I think that a lot of what I did, but not all of what I did, was journalism. You know, for all the people that call us... Or called us journalists in quotes. It's like go yeah. read, go read my fifty thousand word history of Naughty Dog and tell me yeah, that's yeah, not journalism. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like there are things that like we're doing that is yeah. journalism, but we do have to separate 
Um, what is a real journalist that does the White House beat for oh, Washington totally, Post yeah. doing compared to like us talk, playing mm-hmm. uh, and talking about video games? They're very different, you yeah. know. Um, I think it works the other way too, where I feel like a lot of people refer to me as a games journalist, and I'm like, no, 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 no. no. At no point was it, I ever that. I am a game entertainer. But like it, you yeah. saying that, it's like this, that's this what I am. Like I mean, and, and sometimes, like you say, one of the one of the Twitter insults or comments insults, you go, to, call this journalism, and it's like, well, no, no, it's, it's not. This is this particular thing isn't journalism. Yeah. Like yeah. now and then, I'll do the thing that's like, yeah, that's journalism like i mean every site i've ever worked for has had you know um a bunch of people who hate it i think every big site has a bunch of people who hate it mm-hmm. and what the, the criticism we always used to get at igm is eh, it's not journalism and it's like well does it have to be yeah really because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. very limiting actually if the only thing you're allowed to do is journalism you're not allowed to do any opinion and you're not allowed to do any entertainment and you're not allowed to do any criticism it's just mm-hmm. like come on there's loads of more interesting it's one, of those, th- it's one of those words people throw around and i think they understand the weight of the word journalism or yeah. what it truly means you know what i mean when i got my degree in journalism from the university of missouri mm-hmm. and came to ign after working in the daily newspaper where i was like we were super ethically driven, everything I'm writing is super just, this side said this, and this side said that, and it's not about what I think either side means, you know what I mean? Totally. To get there on day one, write my first review, and turn to Rob and be like, hey, I wrote this review, you want to read? And he's like, no, nah, just publish it. <laughs> and I was like, what, excuse me? <laughs> oh my god, the internet like, is just, great. Just, just publish it. And I'm like, don't you want to proof it? He's like, have you looked it over? I'm like, yeah. He's like, it's fine then. And I was like, Okay. Yeah. Like, what? Oh, man, you early internet I mean? was so like yeah, that. Like exactly. there weren't any editors. I mean, actually, I think one of the greatest tragedies of the loss of print media is the loss of sub editors. Like those people that used to just their whole job was to craft things and make them like look good on the page and fix all your grammar yeah. and make it consistent with everything else that was on the website. Mm. Like, we've lost sub editors basically, and it's a it's, it's a shame. It's, it's it's a loss of a craft that I think was important to yeah. to, to writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got away from calling our journalists a lot really early on. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's what I was talking about in the story I was telling when I was working in the Daily Newspaper is you know going to cover this congressman's got meeting and it was a boiling hot Missouri day and I got there and I'd walk there like an idiot and I was sweating like a moron and I drank <laughs> this bottle of water and I put it down empty and I went, oh my god, I'm I just. I just totally sacrificed my ethics. I drank the water they paid for. I went to his aid and I was trying to pay her for the bottle of water I just drank. And she's like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not a big deal. And I, I, I had to sacrificed go and, my ethics. I had to go tell my ex- wow. editor. He's like, it's not a big deal. Don't worry, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to IGN and games journalism in quotes at the time where it's like, oh, here's this all expensed four day trip to go yeah. see two games. Like, you'll see, you're going to be gone for like. 72 hours and you're gonna see two games for 15 minutes apiece yeah. and then the rest is just drinking with your friends and partying at this pool you're like what the fuck is happening but that's entertain- like, and, I mean the thing is that doesn't happen so much now as yeah, it no, no, it's, it's, it's a different world yeah, it's different I mean, apart from anything else nobody's got the money yeah. to do it like we don't I mean, in the early 2000s like when I started out in mid 2000s like the people just had all this money like Vivendi yeah. would just have all this fucking money and they'd Sierra. just be like hey just take people to Miami for a week to show them three games and it was just ridiculous yeah. but the thing is it's still like that in, in like lifestyle and entertainment journalism which which isn't again really isn't isn't, isn't journalism, journalism in the same way as what, what we do. do. Call it. But you know, I remember reading a, a re- <laughs> I remember reading a thing a friend of mine who works in entertainment journalism wrote that was a review of Virgin's Virgin Flights' entertainment system, and then at the bottom it was like, "Thanks to Virgin for the three day trip to a Jamaican spa." Yeah. You know? And it was like, yeah, I mean, that stuff still happens. And it's like that nobody has a go at somebody writing for a lifestyle or entertainment website for going on a trip or for all this stuff because no one expects journalism from them. Yeah. And I think it, there's a weird thing in games where people expect everything to be journalism all the time. And it's like, where did this come from? Because it mm-hmm. never even was like that. Like when I was reading magazines growing up, like very little of that was journalism. Most of it was just messing around. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think it's always just the fear, right? Like, and it's the, again, I think the games industry is so young. 
that you know we're still learning all of this as we go and still seeing it develop and all these different things and it comes down to basically people being afraid of oh IGN got paid off to give that a 10 and I'm that, not going to which never happens bucks. incidentally oh, yeah. literally in 10 years I've never heard of that happening yeah, in the specialist press that's the really frustrating thing is like for all the conspiracy theories that are out there yeah. like I don't even know what anyone's talking about yeah. you know like like maybe those things have happened in other places at other yeah. times I have no idea all I know is that my experience with my outlet that I worked at and like the people surrounding yeah. me everything was on the up and up I like, worked like, work for pretty much every British games outlet now never once mm. and like interestingly the uh, um, yeah the conspiracy theory things become worse lately because there's this concept of internet truth which is that something just becomes received wisdom on whatever forum or Twitter or whatever it just becomes received wisdom and there's no at no point has anybody ever proven it yeah and then well, those same people are like, you're, you're not doing journalism. So you're not even doing thinking correctly. There is, <laughs> there, there, there are, you're not doing evidence-based thinking. Yeah, I mean, that was the funny thing to me was that, like, there are even, a f like, I've seen a few posts and a few tweets being like, uh, you know, game journalism is getting cleaned up. And one of them is that they fired, IGN fired Colin Moriarty and Greg Miller <laughs> well, or whatever. And brilliant. I'm like, really? Because I'm pretty sure we quit uh, three months before we left. Yeah. And there were all, you know, there were attempts to keep us there and all these it's kinds just, of things. It's just like, but like, you're right. Like, once it's, once it's out there, it's out there, and it Internet is what truth. it is. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. exactly. But I do sympathize with why, what some people say about games. Let's call it games writing, right? Mm -hmm. I do sympathize. I think a lot of like I don't. I think some games writing is complete trash. I think that a lot of it is click driven and not. And that's something that I really never cared about personally. I got traffic because I wrote about the things I cared about, and I was passionate about those subject matter. Yeah. That subject matter. Not everybody's that lucky. No, you know? I, I I know that, mm. but. But, you know, I understand why people are mad about clicking on a story about rehashing the same thing over and over again or just let, not letting well, a certain horrible headlines, go. you know, because there are some, um, you know, part of the reason for this, and I think the biggest problem that games media has is that everybody who gets good goes away because the money's poor, usually, um, unless you're really lucky, the money's poor in games journalism, um, the career prospects are low, like once you get to, you know, you, you, senior you, you editor. You hit the ceiling, yeah, like, well, I mean, where do I go from here? Yeah, um, you know, I don't know what I'm doing in 10 years, like am I still going to be editing a website? Yeah. I don't know. Um, and all these reasons, and you know, there's, there's little respect associated with the profession outside of the gaming world, and for all these reasons, like people get to 30, they get really good, and then they go, and they just hire like wave after wave of young people yep. who don't necessarily know how to do good reporting, and they've got no one training them, and meanwhile a lot of media organizations aren't investing properly in training their staff, so that's why you get a lot of rubbishy headlines and that's why you get a lot of really just bad reporting because nobody's trained young people to do it. You see the same mistakes over and over. Yeah, yeah and it's kind of frustrating because I think that, you know, if you want to fix games journalism then show me the money. Put some money into it, train people, give people who are, you know, 30 plus and who've been doing this for a long time good incentive to stick around and you're going to have a better quality of journalism. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the outlets that do value their writers consequently have a better level of yeah. writing. Yeah, and, you I, know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree with that just in the sense that there is a lot of churn which creates, an, ironically, a lot of journalism, mm -hmm. which then, you know, like, it is important to compartmentalize what the different kinds of things people are doing out there and the different kinds of writing that are out there. For instance, you're one of the, like, and I've said it, when, when you left IGN, I was like, I can't believe that, like, we're losing Keza because Keza's, like, one of the great writers in, ga in games, and you are, you know? I and I actually, <laughs> And I think that, you know, one of your colleagues in the States, Jason Schreier, is another one of these guys that writes real journalism. He is you know? such a good reporter. And, like, like and, and I have a lot of respect for him. Guys like Matt Leone over at Polygon write real journalism. If you want that kind of stuff and I feel like I used to write that kind of stuff too and I still do I, I like more editorializing now so I'm not like researching anymore but mm. you have to if you want that kind of stuff support that kind of stuff but understand that things are kind of changing 
and that there's always going to be a place for that kind of great writing and that essential kind of writing. But people are going over to YouTube and people are moving over to Twitch and finding the people that they trust in games criticism, which must be compartmentalized from yeah. games journalism, which is why I think games criticism is kind of falling. Yeah. And I think that games journalism is kind of plateaued where it's like there are good people out there doing good work and I support them. And, and the stories behind the games are the best. Uh, it's the best, you know? So you have to, if you want to see more of it, make sure to support the people that are doing it right right now because mm. you'll see more of it if you do. And then there's also another thing I sympathize with when people, because so someone um, criticizing Kotaku with, you know, on Twitter with me recently was like, oh, you just put up, there's a lot of like really valueless stuff that you put up and it's just like just to fund people like Jason and, and you and Patrick Peck and whoever else they picked who were good. And it's like, well, yeah, that's kind of how online media works. <laughs> uh, there's always going to be stuff on the site that's not the best mm-hmm. or there's always going to be something that's, um, even if it's not, a mistake if it's just like a low value like oh here's a video that's cool you know or oh here's a picture someone's done there's always going to be three line stories because unfortunately that's kind of the way the online media works now like you it's need the, the volume you can't make every single thing you put up on the internet take you three days of research right. because you ju- it's, just, it's just not viable as a business mm. so when you read a site like I mean BuzzFeed is another example you know a lot of just like quite valueless trash that might make you smile but you know and then a lot of interesting investigative journalism it took a long time you know that's that's kind of how the, the ratio works mm. I think a lot of people criticize you know, whether it's IGN or Kotaku or anyone there's, there's a lot of criticism like oh but so much of what you do like you haven't put much effort into and it seems like you know, it's, it's, it's a top 10 list yeah it's, oh it's a list it's like well that's what you have to well, that's why we get to do good things it's because these things go up and they're less effort and they yeah. do good business and that's and you just gotta be, it's, it's business minded about it Th- you know? and that's the piece of the puzzle that always bothered me the most mm. is that People be like, I hate. We go into the comments of a story and be like, I hate this kind of writing. I'm like, but you are clicking on it, and that is, and that, and that is sending the metric the, yeah. message that you mm-hmm. like it. If you don't, that's another thing. If you don't want to see the stuff you don't want to see, do not consume it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because then the numbers will plummet, and you'll get more of something else. You well, know, and, uh, and, and, and one return. of the things I like about working at Kotaku is I think the ratio is pretty good. Like almost everything I work on, I get to spend time on, and I really enjoy. And interestingly, the stuff that is best for us, at least on my. UK bit of the site the stuff that does best for us is usually the stuff that took a lot of effort so it makes sense and it's, and it, it's great because that gives you the opportunity to spend time on interesting features and not necessarily you know thankfully we're big enough that we don't have to shit out 20 shit stories a day like if you're a small site and you just have to get volume and you're just yeah. trying to get on gaff on M4G and stuff and you're just yeah. these poor young guys are just shitting out 20 rubbish stories a day you know we don't have to do that where yeah. I am, and I feel very lucky not to have to do that. But unfortunately, it's kind of the model for online journalism because mm. of the way that the advertising model works. And this is why I think that the online advertising model, this is very boring. I won't go on about it, but I think it's, it's definitely going down the toilet. Like the way that ads work, like based on volume, yeah. like, oh, there's X thousand people, X million people read this. Therefore, the, uh, the, ad, the ad is worth this much. I sure, think that's, sure, that's sure. definitely dying. It's like, all changing. Yeah. The entire thing is changing. And it's changing. Thanks to you guys for supporting <laughs> us in places like Patreon.com slash Kind of Funny Games. This is Thank amazing, so by the way. Much. I think what you've it done is. is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very it's much. It's really very, great. Very, very I very, much. very much enjoyed what you've been doing. Yeah. I think it's Thank you. We appreciate that. That means a lot from you. <laughs> this has been the first ever and last ever episode 10 of the Kind of Funny Games cast. Thank you so much, Keza, for joining us. No worries. Thank it's you been so a much to the people on Twitch watching us live. That, that was super cool of you. Your chat was great, I'm sure. I didn't see it, though. We're not allowed to. Yeah. Kevin won't allow it. Kevin, Kevin's being kind of a a mean guy right now. Anyways, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. I love you. I love you. Bye. Bye-bye.